Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello. Today is February 2nd, 2015. Happy Groundhog's Day, everybody. This is The Mixed Experience, a weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. And it's the only live weekly podcast about being racially and culturally mixed. I'm your host, Heidi DeRoe, and resident mixed chick, and I am black and Danish. Today, we have a really fantastic guest, a friend of mine, and he's going to be talking about the mixed experience. Uh, I don't know if he realizes this, but he's part of it, too, and his wonderful book is as well, so I can't wait to talk to him. But first, I have a couple of announcements. One, uh, if you follow this podcast at all, or if you follow me, you know that I have a labor of love that takes up probably too much of my time and too much time away from the writing, but it is a labor of love. It's called the Mixed Remixed Festival. It's happening June 13th, 2015 in downtown Los Angeles at the Japanese American National Museum. The good news for all of you procrastinators is that the deadline for submitting your work for consideration to be part of the lineup has been extended again. It's been extended again until February 13th, 2015. So guys, get your work in. Get your work in. We want to hear your stories. We would love to have you be a part of the festival. We're in particular looking for panelists which means you don't have to put together a whole panel. You just have to submit yourself, describe your expertise or your angle or your thing and how it relates to the mixed experience, and we will find the perfect panel for you. We're in very much need of more diversity, and by that I mean we're looking in particular for the LGBTQ community to show up in the submissions and we would really, really love to have more transracial adoption consultants, parents, uh, children of, to come through and talk about that experience as well. Also, I'll be doing some speaking coming up. I don't have the exact details yet, but I'll be in Santa Barbara on March 5th, and I'll be in Amherst, Massachusetts on March 11th. More details to come. Okay, my guest is a friend of mine. I, I'm so happy I can say that. I met him many years ago in the last weeks that I was trying to finish The Girl Who Fell From the Sky before I turned it in. He is a, a generous and wonderful person. And this is Ravi Howard. He received the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence in 2008 for his first novel, Like Trees Walking, which was a fictionalized account of a true story, the 1981 lynching of a black teenager in Alabama. Robbie was a finalist for both the Hemingway Foundation Penn Award and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for debut fiction in 2008. He's recorded commentary for National Public Radio's All Things Considered, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, Massachusetts Review, and Callaloo. He also appeared in the Ted Koppel documentary, The Last Lynching, on the Discovery Channel. Howard has received fellowships and awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, 
Christian Wright Foundation, Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the New Jersey State Council on the Arts. His television production work has appeared on HBO, ESPN, Fox Sports One, and NFL Network. He received a 2004 Sports Emmy for his work on HBO's Inside the NFL. I'm excited to have him on the show today to talk about his new book that just came out, Driving the King. So I just want to welcome you. Hi. Welcome, Robbie Howard. Thanks, Heidi. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm so glad you could join me on the show. I I feel so lucky. I've had this string of wonderful writers come on the show. All sorts of great things are happening for for all the people. So I think something really awesome is about to happen to you, Robbie. Uh, I, I interviewed Celeste Ng, and then her book became a number one Amazon book of the year. I interviewed oh, well, Natalie Seville, and now her book is going to be uh, an Oprah an show. An series. TV yeah, show. I just saw the news about that. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So I think some good stuff is about to happen for you, my friend. <laughs> Not that it happened well, already. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And I remember, I think I remember you were doing a podcast when we were uh, together in Wyoming at uh, UCross. Right. So I remember. This is this is my reboot. So this is my, my second foray into podcasting, and it's been even more fun this time, which is really great. So I am going to ask you the traditional first question, and, and you have to answer it truthfully, but there okay. is no right answer to it. So here goes. The question is, what are you? What am I? Uh, I guess I'm mainly a, a black southerner. And I, I guess that comes through in the writing. And I guess it's even more affirmed in what I write, um, just the history that kind of comes through the work. But that is, uh, it's, not def- it's definitely not an endpoint in the writing because I think so many of the stories that we write about um, from from any experience, tend to be migration stories. So we see where the characters start, where they end up um, generationally, uh, personally. So all of those journeys, I think, kind of come through. And I think kind of my background, you know, I've, I've seen how the writing kind of helps to affirm identity and explore identity and, to, you know, create imagined identities as well. Well, I, I love that you had an answer. Last week I was interviewing a, a man who is a white Jewish man adopted a black Ethiopian child. And I asked him that question, and I think he was just thoroughly perplexed because that's not part of his experience of trying to be misidentified at any point or um, having people not understand kind of the basics of what he was (laughs) when he walked into a room. So... I feel like there's something about, especially having a minority experience in America, that makes it a question that doesn't seem so foreign. I don't know if you would agree with that. Uh, I agree. And I think part of it, too, is as writers, I think we are kind of used to sometimes being outside of an experience and kind of looking, um, just trying to observe. And I think maybe culturally, especially a lot of people who might be, their experience might be seen as the default experience of America. So they aren't asked those identity questions as much as people who might seem to be, you know, outside of of a particular, of like a traditional kind of white mainstream American experience. So I don't know if it's, if it's like point of view, because if you have never had to observe those things about yourself or 
or had those questions maybe you haven't explored. And maybe because some of us have been asked so many times or had to kind of deal with identity questions so many times, it, it's something that becomes second nature to us. So when we start to write, we can kind of take on different identities within the work very easily because we've had to, or we've had to kind of observe so much culturally. So, you know, maybe that's part of it. You also have taken on a lot of different identities. You weren't always a novelist. You weren't always an award-winning writer. You have been a journalist, and you've worked in TV. So how does that career path fit into what you do now, which is tell wonderful stories? I think going from maybe journalism and television to fiction was helpful because from one week to the next, you really never know what you're going to be writing about. You don't get a chance to choose characters or endings, so you have to deal with whatever kind of comes your way. I think um, maybe coming off of the Super Bowl, I worked in sports for so long, so you just never know how a game is going to end. So you don't know, even if you go in with all kinds of storylines, you never know where you're going to end up. And I think fiction is like that, too, even though we kind of have these ideas of what we want to do with characters as they start to have identities and lives and kind of those arcs that we kind of build and journeys, they start to kind of go to places and we can, you know, observe a little bit more and kind of give them space to grow. So maybe being a journalist, just from not only just the nonfiction aspect of it, but the research aspect of it, I had to kind of find all these aspects of story that I could deal with from, I guess, you know, real experiences and kind of figure out how to, put them in, a, in an imagined space and make it feel, you know, plausible and real and vivid and, you know, just very textured for people who have well, not been to that space. Yes. Well, let's talk about your wonderful book, Driving the King. It just came out uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's inspired by your imagination, but it contains real people. We've got Nat King Cole on the cover. How, how would you describe the book? briefly to readers? I guess it's loosely based on the Alabama origins of Nat Cole. Uh, he was born in Montgomery, which is my I hometown. I had no idea about that, really. I, I always thought of him as someone who might be, you know, northern, born and bred, just because of the way he spoke, and I, I don't know why I had that idea. He was a very big, important man in my father's life, and my father was from the South and didn't mm -hmm. like having that background, but he really looked up to Nat King Cole, and I thought, well, that must be because he's a northerner. I think part of it, too, is he, he moved to Chicago when he was about four. So I think that really became his identity and most of his, where his culture was. But um, the childhood home he was born in uh, has been restored recently in Montgomery. But, yeah, he, I think part two, when also he became this, you know, pop icon. And I think when you become an icon like that and have such an image, you can kind of, there's a, a bit of reinvention that kind of goes on. So I think in two, um, I guess he, when he moved from Chicago to Los Angeles and lived in Hancock Park, you know, I always kind of associated him with Hollywood. So it's funny how once someone becomes a television star, you kind of associate them with, um, you know, Southern California because that is pretty much where they are kind of going to the world from that space. So it's interesting for me to kind of find out some of those more obscure parts of his history before he became this, you know, this television star living in Los Angeles. Now, the book itself really is focused on a character who also is named 
Matt. And it, but it's inspired by a real event where uh, Nat King Cole was on stage and he was attacked. Yes, he and was. Uh, yeah, he was attacked was by members of the uh, White White Citizens Council. Um, I guess it was 1956 in Birmingham, but I changed it to Montgomery uh, in 1945. But you know, just imagine the most pop- one of the most popular series, uh, singers in America um, being attacked by, you know, a white supremacist group, um, kind of at the height of the civil rights movement. Uh, well, just shortly after uh, the Montgomery bus boycott started. So, you know, I kind of saw him as being kind of part of that history as well. And I just write the book from the perspective of a childhood friend, Nat Weary, who witnessed the event. That event changed his life as well, and they kind of reunite in Los Angeles some years later. I, I love Nat Weary. Uh, well, I love his name because it is so perfect. But he um, he's a good man. He's a simple man, and he is he's loyal as well. Um, I I don't think we experience that many African American characters in this way in books as often as we should. Did you feel like that was? part of the guiding principle of creating this character? Yeah, I think, you, uh, I think you're right. I think one of, one of the things I wanted to explore was that there were people who came out of the 50s, be they Hollywood stars or civil rights icons that really had a lot of charisma and were well-known, um, who kind of had that, I guess, star power, like Rosa Parks or Jackie Robinson or Nat Cole or Martin Luther King Jr. But there were other folks who were kind of... Um, with them or supporting them or doing, had similar paths who are less, are, are less well-known. So I wanted to look at the history from the perspective of those folks who didn't get famous, but they had just as interesting a story. And I thought that was kind of an interesting place to kind of put the camera uh, with people who were around those stars or those icons or who were close to the history makers. Um, but they are in a position kind of in the shadow a little bit where they can tell the story and then have a life that was separate that I could explore. I, I really love that piece of it because the backstage part of these famous people's lives really had so much to do with what they were able to do on stage and the ways in which they could be stars or bigger than life in whichever way it was. Um, it's also a love story, which was lovely. And I don't know, I, should I say much more than that? Oh, no, you can. You can. Thank you. Uh, thank you for noticing that. I think um, some things I notice when we write about historical icons, it's almost like they are kind of these people who are etched in stone. Um, they are very much kind of these statuesque folks or statues, and we don't necessarily kind of get into just kind of the the passion or just kind of the human emotions that they were going through. So that was something I wanted to do um, and show how, you know, the violence of the South or all of the kind of turmoil that people were going through during the civil rights movement interrupted lives. So the kind of love that people might have had um, might have been interrupted. When Nat Cole was at this concert, I mean, Nat Weary was at this concert uh, watching Nat Cole, but he was with a woman uh, who was his sweetheart during the war, uh, during World War II. Um, In the end, they are not going to get together because as a result of the aftermath of the violence. So both of them kind of end up on different paths as a, as a result of this uh, moment of violence. So I kind of show a little bit of both of them. 
and how, you know, one moment changes so many lives and so how people are trying to make progress because of what they lost as well as what they kind of want to gain in the future. I, I, I really enjoyed that piece of it as well. And, and the female characters as well are so well written um, and well rounded, but the love story piece of it was a great delight for me. I'm wondering, uh, as I was reading it, because here we are in the age and time that we are in 2015, two things came to mind for me um, Ferguson and mm-hmm. Selma. Mm-hmm. And it's Black History Month. Right, so, right. Does the book, and obviously you wrote it long before these things happened. Does the book to you in any way speak to what's going on in Ferguson and with all the protests around the country regarding police violence against black people? Uh, It it definitely does. And um, I guess one of the things about Ferguson that I think is very similar to what's going on in the book, um, these are young people in Ferguson who are leading protests. And a lot of times older people, older generations, aren't comfortable with younger people um, leading protests. But that was exactly what was happening in Montgomery. Um, Claudette Colvin, I think, has a lot of resonance or a lot of parallels with people, the young people of Ferguson, um, the people who are dream defenders uh, from, you know, coming out of Florida and Trayvon Martin, or people, the Black Lives Matter um, movement folks. And Claudette Colvin was a young woman who was 15 years old in Montgomery who was um, refused to give up her seat in the bus months before Rosa Parks. And she was dragged off the bus by police. She was yelling about her constitutional rights, and she was arrested. And I think it was eventually decided that, well, the people, you can't, people, older people couldn't sit back and let young folks kind of be leaders of a movement and I think the, the older generations had to show that they were also uncomfortable with the status quo, so they had to help to agitate. So a lot came out of that movement. And also um, with what was happening, with what's happening with the film Selma. I yes, think it's I, beautiful. I, I the film yeah. Selma, too. Yeah, I yeah. And, the reviews of what people, I mean, they say it's a wonderful book because it is, but they also want to go through point by point to say, well, Howard takes license here, and Howard takes license here. And um, I'm, I'm very glad that it hasn't smudged your book in the same way that it seemed to with the Oscar campaign that was seemingly against Selma the movie. Right. I thought it was, you know, just really underhanded what was happening, especially to Selma, um, because I think it just diminishes the power of fiction it diminishes the power of storytelling because people of color haven't always had that luxury of, say, say a presidential historian where they have all of this material available to them. Um, So much of our art is the history. It was the only history that was available to us. Um, I saw a documentary not too long, well, some years ago, uh, on the black press by Stanley Nelson, and they talked about the reason the black press existed was because you could not print a death notice or an obituary of a black person in a white paper. Your life really did not count until there was someone who could, a black publication that could register it. So there have always been this, this wonderful history of artists and writers kind of acknowledging black lives, and I think that's really what um, Ava DuVernay did. Uh, to start those stories with those anonymous folks who are kind of on the edge of that history, helping King, um, helping Abernathy or the people we know of, 
So I think we really honor, honor the anonymous and the unknown with the way that we tell stories or tell history through art because I think this top-down view of history coming from like a presidential historian is never going to get to those people on the edges, um, no matter why, whether it be, say, from a mixed experience or black people who are not counted on voting rolls. Um, you can't really look to the power structure to count those voices. So that's where the art kind of comes from, the disenfranchised folks. So I think that film was really a celebration of that, and I want the book to be a celebration of that as well. I, I really think it is. I mean, I just think it's a wonderful book. I think everyone needs to read it. And it, it's so funny, you know, it's a book, and I, I actually read it in two different ways uh, because I was I needed to be able to read it when I was in motion, and so I ended mm-hmm. up getting it on audio, and it's wonderfully oh, narrated by Adam Lazar White, who is an actor and, and someone I have known in the past uh, through Friends, he does a wonderful job of getting the sound of the book, I think. But then, so I, the first 10 chapters I heard that way, and the rest of the book I, I read in, book form, in a book form in my hands, not on a e-reader. But it still had, it still had a sound to it. I mean, your Nat Weary uh, has this resonant, wonderful voice and the way he pays attention to things is exactly what I would imagine this man doing. How did you capture that? Was he modeled at all after someone? Well, well, thanks. I, I really appreciate it. Um, like you, I really appreciated kind of hearing the audio book and hearing um, just the performance that I thought was really wonderful. And I guess what, what his voice, I wanted it to be was something of a continuum uh, between, say, his voice and, say, Nat Cole's voice. Nat Cole being someone who started, um, you know, Nat Cole being someone who started in Montgomery, went to Chicago, and then Los Angeles. And I love, you know, hearing maybe the musicians or actors who come out of Los Angeles or Chicago, you can still hear those twinges of southernness, but it's kind of being re- reinvented as they have kind of left. But There's I wanted- a wonderful line. Uh, he's describing uh, the, the woman he meets in L.A., I think, and there's a description about her voice that she's just city enough and then something about a little bit of a southernness to it, and it just makes him crazy. He's like, that's the sexiest thing in the world, to be able to have those two sounds combined in your voice and look like that. Yeah, and I thought it was kind of cool the way people, even though people are leaving home uh, and kind of migrating elsewhere, they're still kind of looking for some little pieces of familiarity or some little bits of uh, comfort. And sometimes they find that in the communities, and especially, I guess, you know, Nat kind of meeting other people or going to, you know, listen to music. What is he kind of hearing kind of in those voices? Um, And I guess one thing I heard that I I thought resonated with me, Audra McDonald was talking about playing Billie Holiday on Broadway, and she talked about the fact that in order to get into that famous voice, she had to kind of use her grandmother's voice. So I think that was like, that that kind of, you know, sparked something in me thinking about, you know, even though I'm dealing with someone famous, a lot of the people in the book were kind of coming from voices that I think were familiar to me, you know, just over the years, maybe be it music, be it people I knew. So just using those familiar voices and kind of pushing them into the fiction and kind of, you know, remixing them, remodeling them a little bit so you kind of create character. Well, do you think you'll always be drawn to fictionalizing historical moments or events or 
to be inspired by that because your first book also was a fictionalization of something that happened in 19 in the 1980s and now this is is this your path or or what's next for you that's an interesting question because this is yeah the first one was about a lynching that took place in 81 and you know and this one goes a little bit you know deeper into alabama history i think though um the next book i plan a couple of projects i have planned um, i want them to be contemporary but at the same time i feel like there's a lot of kind of generational kind of history that's coming through. So they will be kind of the mix of his, uh, the historical and the, and the contemporary that I really like. Um, so I, I kind of see the historical fiction can be a little bit taxing because, you know, you, what, what were people wearing that year? What were people listening to? What were they driving? So, you know, it can be a little bit tough. Um, you know, I love that research of it, but I want to kind of try on a little bit of, um, you know, contemporary work to see where that takes me. I, um, I'm excited to hear that. So I have um, this idea that we are in a new renaissance moment for African-American male writers, and I think it's really exciting. And, and not to put the fine point on it, but, you know, the kind of the, one of the grandfathers, black arts movement, Amiri Baraka, has passed away. Mm-hmm. But now we have you, Ravi, and we have Keith Lehman, and we have uh, – Daryl Mitchell, and we have Matt Johnson, and we have Victor Laval, and I know I'm forgetting lots of people I should be naming right now, but what do you think of that? I mean, is this is this a new moment for African-American male writers? I've, one reason, I guess, I think so is that, you know, a lot of those folks that you've named, you know, I've had a chance to meet, um, like Victor Laval and uh, Matt Johnson were you know, two writers who have been very kind to me over the years and really kind of helping to get stories together. I think um, that sense of kind of feeling connected to all of those writers has been just really exciting. And just to see their work and then the range of their work, some of them doing, you know, historical things, historical pieces, contemporary pieces, also teaching and kind of, you know, guiding students. So there are students that are following that path. So it has been, I think, a very exciting time. I um. I think with this being my second book, I'm really kind of looking forward to seeing, you know, what happens with the third and fourth and hopefully, you know, beyond that. And and I think with the writers you mentioned, so many of them have, you know, kind of reached that place in their career where they have like maybe three or, you know, three to five books so we can kind of see that path in addition to people like Ernest Gaines and Amiri Baraka. And we can see where they are kind of, you know, deeper into the career, um, you know, those people that really have that legacy. So I think, you know, between that and, you know, I think it's important to have heroes who are, you know, those older writers who have, you know, been doing it for maybe 20, 30 years, but also have, you know, closer heroes or, you know, a sense of community of people who are kind of, you know, in the orbit. So, yeah, it's kind of an exciting time, you know, to, to see somebody in a newspaper because of something they've done and then you know them. You know, that's always yes. exciting. I, I find that so thrilling all the time. As soon as I saw that Natalie's book had been picked up, I thought, oh, my God, I know her. That's so exciting. I'm so excited for her. Um, and, so here, this is on a personal note. Mm-hmm. How hard was it to finish book two? <laughs> how long did uh, it take? How, you know, I start, uh, when I was at UCross, I was working on the early chapters. And so I had a few drafts that I thought were working and weren't, but I think I learned a lot from the process. So I think over the years, you know, I just kind of learned to be patient 
and to let yeah. you know if 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 a draft is kind of falling apart, that's something structurally that is telling you answering a question for you. Um, so that was one of the things I really kind of learned to watch and see. Okay, what am I going to learn? And also be patient and know a lot of the lessons I learned from my first book didn't apply here. I mean, they had certain, you know, career, um, there were career lessons, but they weren't necessarily lessons I could apply to the page. So I had to be patient and know that this is a new process. I'm starting with book two. Book three is going to be totally new because it might be my first time working with a contemporary book or, you know, a third-person narration. So just let the new the newness of the process be there. Um, let the pieces that fall away be fine, knowing that, well, I've learned something from it, no matter how much I love that language. So I've kind of learned to, you know, let the process kind of, to be pragmatic, I guess, with the process and know, okay, what's not working? And let me kind of separate that uh, from what is. I, I really appreciate that, uh, also because we share the same agent who keeps asking me about when the book yeah. will be ready. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's good to have, you know, good folks, you know, kind of in your corner so they can kind of yes. nudge, but at the same time they understand the process. So it's – and those questions, I think, are also, you know, helpful, I think. You know, so you don't feel like you're kind of in this vacuum kind of working, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lonely experience to – be in your imagination. It's also wonderful, but it's 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 a great gift to be able to do it for a living. I must say that. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Rob, I think I, also, I was going to say thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's been a blast. I was I've been looking forward to this for a while, so I'm glad to have the book out so we can we can chat. Well, so if people are interested in learning more about you, they can go to www.robbiehoward.com. That's R-A-V-I-H-O-W-A-R-D.com. And Robbie's on social media. He's on Twitter at Robbie Howard, also on Instagram, also on Tumblr. So if you want to check him out, you can find him in all those places. But do, please, people who are listening, pick up this wonderful book, um, First of all, it's a gorgeous cover. It's very fetching. It's got Nat King Cole on it. And well, thank you. It's a beautiful read. I mean, I I read it in just two sittings, and um, I wanted more, actually. Well, thank you. I um, that's you know, it's 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 always exciting to kind of get stuff down, but you know how the characters kind of keep turning and working within you after you know the process. So. Um, but thank you. Thank you for reading and um, enjoying it. Thanks, Robbie, for coming on today, and I can't wait to see what you do next. So keep in touch. All right. Thanks, Heidi. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Robbie Howard, the writer, the author of Driving the King, a really excellent novel. Um, you're going to eat it up. And if you're someone who likes to listen to books on tape or through Audible or however it is you do it. Adam Zara White does a really excellent job of reading this book. I mean, it feels like you have this fantastic storyteller in your ear as well. So that is an option too. Okay, so that's the show for today. The Mixed Experience is back again next Monday at 5 o'clock, and we have a great guest in Sherry Kwan Lee, who is the author of the memoir, Love Imagine, which I, I read a couple of weeks ago and really, oh, 
oh man, we have so much to talk about because it tells this very complicated story about a young girl who is mixed race who is forced to pass essentially by her parents and really struggles to figure out how to identify herself. It's also interesting because she's just about a generation older than I am and it's interesting to see how much things have changed and how little things have changed. So if you want to read the book in advance, it's called Love Imagines, and um, she'll be with us next Monday. Okay, um, you can always find out what's next by visiting www.themixedexperience.com. If you have ideas for shows, you can email me at Heidi at HeidiWDuro.com, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Heidi Duro. So I am so glad you joined us, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.